How you doing? Can you hear me? I can hear you, brother. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for doing this. No, of course, man. Anything we can do to get your voice out. Um, I'm a, I'm a big fan, brother. Um, Thank you. I will, I will, I'll text you my name here in a little bit and uh, we can chat offline. Um, big fan. And, uh, you know, your resume is just awesome. Hey, Julia. Good hey, to guys. See you. How are you doing? Hey, good. Just waiting on Mark. Let me uh, text him and uh, we'll get going. Um, uh, let me see here. And what do you what topics do you want me to? I can cover anything you want. What do you want me to cover today? Uh, you know, really, it's I mean, it's up to our guests, right? You're you're our featured guest. I know that. Um, I know from looking at your tweets and other stuff that you're brilliant, that you're a great lawyer, that you clerked at the Supreme Court, which is amazing. Um, I know that your tweets on Trump have been absolutely spot on. I am curious. I'd like to talk about just your overall take of the Trump raid, um, where it's going, where it's heading. Yeah. Um, if, 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 if the motion to expedite you feel is going to do anything for either side, uh, which, which I believe was granted. Yeah. Um, so I believe that was granted. So, um, so definitely those topics. Um, right. so I've, I, I've, I've been following you there. We usually try to record for about 45 minutes, uh, you know, not including right now. So um, I'm trying to think, is, is, is there anything else on your mind or chomping at the bit or anything that you want to talk about else? Um, not, not, whatever you guys want to talk about, I'm great with. I think uh, okay, cool. I'd love to hit on the big tech, uh, the Jim Jordan story, and just get oh, some you of your it. thoughts or your summary, some input on that. Sure. I, awesome. I get in trouble. I get in trouble every time I open my mouth. So <laughs> yeah, but that, that to me was um, really fascinating because, you know, Jim has been rising in popularity um, especially I know me, you know, I started to like him a lot. And so when I saw that, I don't want to say a shock, but definitely quite disappointed. So. Yeah. Well, we can talk All about right. that. Awesome. Mark, are you there? Yeah. Sorry for the delay, everyone. Uh, but I'm, oh. I'm here. You're good. Okay. So my ticker is going to be at 340 for a start time. So I'm going to mute here in about uh, five seconds to get our little 10 second intro. And then um, I will introduce Mike, and then I'll go right over to him. He can introduce himself, and then we'll start with the Trump story, and then we'll transition over. So I'm going silent in three, two, one. Good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you are. It is October 6, 2022, and you're with Two Feds and the Truth, and we are super excited for our guest tonight. Mike Davis is with us, and if you don't follow him on Twitter, uh, absolute must follow. Mike is, Mike is, you know, from one attorney to another, Mike is awesome. He's amazing. I've been following his, his tweets, and we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about Trump. We're going to talk about the search warrant. We're going to talk about DOJ with their relentless pursuit of uh, this case that's going on here. And, you know, just some of the stuff that Mike Davis has done. He's with the Article 3 Project, Unsilenced Org, uh, former chief counsel for nominations for the U.S. Senate Committee on the Judiciary, and law clerk to uh, Supreme Court Justice 
Neil Gorsuch. You know, it, it doesn't get much cooler for an attorney uh, to have that job. So, Mike, awesome to have you on. We're super excited. We can't wait to get into some analysis with you. Um, so short of what I said, though, uh, for people that, that don't follow you on Twitter, uh, you know, give them the intro of Mike Davis. Who are you? Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. I am uh, I'm from Iowa. I went to the University of Iowa for undergrad and law school. I got involved with politics in Iowa. I interned for Newt Gingrich when he was the House Speaker, when he went down as House Speaker during the Clinton impeachment. And then I started Students for George W. Bush, got involved politically there, worked in the Bush 43 administration before law school. After law school, and that's where I. Um, after law school, I worked at the, I worked at the White House, uh, in the Office of Political Affairs, helped with the hiring and firing, and of the political appointees, and that's how I met Neil Gorsuch, and helped him become a Justice Department official and a Tenth Circuit judge, and then he dragged me out to Colorado, and I was uh, his one of his first clerks on the Tenth Circuit for a year. And I liked it so much in Colorado that I stayed and I was a real lawyer, a civil litigator for 10 years. And then uh, when Trump won, I helped Gorsuch get picked and confirmed and set up on the Supreme Court. And I got dragged back out into the swamp, unfortunately. And uh, and then I uh, when and then uh, I worked for Senator Grassley right out of college, my home state senator. I opened his mail in 2000. And so he called me back to help him run his nominations team when he was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. So I was the chief counsel for nominations. I helped Trump confirm uh, his judges. And then when I left, I thought I was going to go back to Colorado. And then I got roped into starting another cause. And that's the Article 3 project where we fight for conservative judicial nominees and judges and the rule of law. And then I also started the Internet Accountability Project, where we go after big tech from the right on antitrust, uh, Section 230 reform and data privacy. And then I, I keep getting roped into starting these groups. Uh, and I started the Unsilenced Majority, which goes after cancel culture. So we give them a healthy dose of their own medicine so they stop doing their cancel culture crap. And so that's what I'm doing now. Uh, that's awesome. I, I'm, I'm having a blast. I, I, I don't make very much money, but I really don't care. I'm having a blast <laughs> And uh, just throwing bombs all day. So it's great. Yes, 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 you are. You are. You are distinguished. And, you know, that is just amazing. Um, yeah, some of the stuff you've done, you know, coming from an attorney who's worked at DOJ and, you know, just just some of that stuff I would have loved to do. And, you know, you have just such amazing attorney experiences, which I think speaks to a lot of characters you have. Um, I want to get into I want to get right into um Trump and the search warrant, right? You know, it's a little bit old news here, but it keeps coming back. And, you know, this is a interesting case from someone who used to prosecute with DOJ. Um, you know, we have a case here where we have a Fourth Amendment seizure. We have a Fourth Amendment violation. We have an affidavit that is piss poor written. The search warrant sucks. Attachment A sucks. Attachment B is even worse and vague with the property description that they want to seize. Then they go in. The taint team doesn't do their job. They take everything and anything. Um, yet we're in a posture now where there's no criminal case, right? There's there's no indictment. There's nothing to be done per se to, to, to challenge this criminally on the Fourth Amendment. So in comes Trump, files a civil case. 
And, you know, they've been going back and forth. They've been sparring. A, a special master has been appointed. And now it seems as DOJ has filed a motion to expedite and the 11th Circuit has granted it. Um, wherever you want to start on that, Mike, there's a lot to digest on this. But what is DOJ doing? Why are they going after a president? I have never seen personally a search warrant, a federal search warrant, so poorly written. Um, I do not believe, and this is my opinion, I know nothing except what I'm reading. I believe personally that it's it was such a piss poor, shitty job by the FBI. There's no way they can ever indict on this case because anything will be suppressed immediately. Um, they may have another indictment. I don't know. People are talking J6. I don't know. But you've been on the ground. You have been throwing tweets out from the get-go. If there's anyone I trust 100% on this, what is your take on DOJ and Trump? This was an unprecedented, unnecessary, and, un and an unlawful home raid on a former president uh, who happens to be the current president's uh, chief political enemy. And it was unlawful all around, and I'll explain why. Number one, we've had executive privilege where presidents can get candid advice from his advisors, both inside and outside of the White House, since George Washington. And President Biden has used January 6th as an excuse to waive 250 years of executive privilege to get Trump. And they've done, they've done this waiver for President Trump's uh, White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, his trade director, uh, Peter Navarro, his top outside advisor, Steve Bannon, even his White House counsel to the president, Pat Cipollone. And this is unprecedented what they're doing. It means that uh, the future presidents are going to be harmed. The president's going to presidency is going to be hard because there's they're not going to get candid advice. Presidents are not going to get candid advice because they're going to be concerned. They're going to get dragged into Congress or courts. And that's right. exactly what's happened here. So that's number one. So we're in order to get Trump, President Biden's going to destroy the president's presidency and it's going to bite him in the ass because he's not going to be the president after, uh, you know, January 20th, 2025. And guess mm -hmm. what? The next president is going to go after him. So he's just short sighted and stupid, but what do you expect from President Biden? But that's number one. So you look at this. President Biden waived executive privilege, which paved the way for this home raid. And that was waived through deputy counsel to the president, Jonathan Sue. It's clear as day. They waived this. And they're going in and they're investigating three non-crimes. It is not legally possible for President Trump to have committed a crime for how he handled his presidential records, and I'll explain why. Number one, the president has the absolute constitutional power as commander-in-chief to declassify anything he wants in any manner he wants. He doesn't have to get anyone's permission to do it, and that is confirmed by, by a 1988 Supreme Court case, Department of the Navy versus Egan. So if President Trump sent these records to Mar-a-Lago, they are declassified, and he actually declassified the key records. What this is all about is the project of the Crossfire Hurricane uh, Russian collusion documents that President Trump clearly classified with a presidential memo on January 19th, 2021, the day before he left office, and the FBI and the Justice Department dragged their feet. They used the Privacy Act as an excuse, and they never publicly released those documents. But he took his personal copy of those records, and that's what this raid is all about. The Biden Justice Department knows those records are so damning 
for Obama, Biden, Hillary, the FBI, the intel community, because they colluded to sick the the FBI to make up this Russian collusion allegation to go after Trump as a presidential candidate to take him out to influence the 2016 election. And they continued to go after him when he was president. So that's what this is all about. But so Trump has, uh, you know, less than he has around 100 records that are marked classified. And so he can declassify anything he wants. But number two, it doesn't matter if they're classified, declassified, non-classified. It doesn't matter if they're marked, not marked. The president under the Presidential Records Act has the absolute power, statutory power to take his presidential records. So his president, his presidential records include documents that he, he and his staff wrote while he was in the White House, along with documents that they received while they're in the White House. So if he received classified materials from the CIA or some other intel agency while he was president, these are presidential records under the Presidential Records Act. And under the Presidential Records Act, he has the absolute statutory right to have his records. And I'll give you an example of this. When President Clinton was the president, he had eight years, 79 audio tapes of his presidency with a biographer in his sock drawer when he left the White House. And they can contain highly classified conversations, including with foreign leaders, his secretary, the secretary of state, many others. There was a 2012 case where Tom Fitton and Judicial Watch sued under the Freedom of Information Act to get these records. And the Obama appointed judge in 2012 in D.C. correctly held that under the Presidential Records Act, the fact that President Clinton took these records with him when he left office and did not turn them over as presidential records makes them personal records for personal records under the Presidential Records Act for him to keep. So dismiss the case because these are personal records. These are his personal copy of presidential records that he's allowed. He has the sole statutory power of the Presidential Records Act to do that. It doesn't matter if they're classified, non-classified, marked classified, not marked classified. It does not matter. They are his Mm -hmm. presidential records. And so therefore, it is not possible. The three predicate crimes the Justice Department used as their hook to go get these records, the Espionage Act, the Federal Records Act, and obstruction of of justice. The Espionage Act cannot apply to the president. It It is legally impossible for the president to commit espionage because he is allowed to classify and declassify anything he wants. A good example is 2012 when Obama leaned over and got caught on the hot mic telling the Russian puppet president that he would have more wiggle room on nuclear negotiation Star Wars after the 2012 presidential election. If anyone else in the world had done that besides the president or someone authorized by the president, that would be espionage. But because it's the president, it is not possible. So it's legally impossible for a president to commit espionage for how he handles classified records. It's also the Presidential Records Act controls presidential records, not the Federal uh, Records Act. And so They use the Federal Records Act and the Espionage Act to to go to this biased magistrate judge, uh, Bruce Reinhart, who just recused from President Trump's civil lawsuit versus Hillary Clinton on June 22nd because of his 2017 Facebook post trashing Trump. He had a clear judicial bias under 28 U.S.C. 455A and Canon 2 and Canon 2 of the judicial candidates. Clearly biased, he recused. Somehow this judicial bias magically disappears six weeks later when the the, right. the National Security Division goes and gets this home raid warrant. It is completely bogus. And I'll tell you this, 
if Merrick Garland said he deliberated, he leaked to Newsweek, to Bill Orkin at Newsweek, that he deliberated for weeks before he authorized this unprecedented, unnecessary, and unlawful home raid. First of all, Trump had these records for 18 months. They never leaked. What was the urgency? And number right. two, if he deliberated for weeks, why didn't he walk down the hall to the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department and get a legal opinion from them on these legal issues that we just discussed? And obviously, he didn't want to do that because they would, they would have given him the answer we just discussed, which is the president can't commit espionage. And the, the, the Presidential Records Act gives the president the absolute right to his records. And so there, therefore, it is impossible as a matter of law for Trump to have obstructed investigations into these two non-crimes. Yeah. No, you know, it's, you know, as always, Mike, you know, you're, you're, you're dead on. And I remember uh, working with Bruce Reinhardt uh, when I was in AUSA in South Florida on the Epstein case. And, um, you know, he was a bigger player than I was, I was a brand new attorney and, um, you know, very, very interesting guy, uh, you know, after, after the powers that be with, with Epstein, give him the sweetheart deal, not only with the feds, but with the state, with the Palm Beach County state attorney's office. Um, after that, he then about four years later, he turns around, goes to work for Epstein's, you know, criminal association or whatever you want to call him at this point. Um, which then brings me to, you know, you know, you know, just, just, just a total comment here, which I want to get your reaction on. We have Donald Trump being politically prosecuted, uh, run over by the current president, his political rival. We also, at the same time, have cases like Ghislaine Maxwell, who we have the Black Book, who was prosecuted and convicted for conspiracy and also human trafficking, yet we have none of her clients. I know this is off topic, but it popped in my head. What What is your take on Ghislaine Maxwell? We have someone here who's trafficking children, yet we don't have a single fucking client that we can link her to? Well, maybe it's because her clients were too high profile um, exactly. polit political people that they don't want to touch. Because as you know, as someone who worked in the Justice Department, we have two systems of justice in America, one for the ruling class and right. one for the rest of us. Yeah, no, you're, you are, you are absolutely right. And the wealth gap is there, but you know, notwithstanding the wealth gap, um, you, you're absolutely right. There are rules for the elitists and there's rules for them. And then there's rules for everyone else that, you know, the everyday Joe can get fucked every since way and they get prosecuted. But you look at stuff like Hillary Clinton with a server in her bathroom, you got, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell, you have all these cases, you have just, just crimes after crimes. You have Hunter Biden, right? And yeah, he looks bad from the optics, but overall, who gives a shit? He's got cocaine, he's got hookers. Probably at this point, the statute is run on the crimes anyway. But then you have Ashley Biden's diary, right? So, you know, going over to Ashley Biden real quick, well, it's now a crime to, to possess. So it's not... It's, it's okay for Biden to possibly do some things that there's allegations of impropriety there with his daughter. But if there's a journalist who wants to look at or sell or take care of or publish the journal, now we have crimes. So it seems like the DOJ specifically, as we speak today, picks their targets very carefully. And if you're on their list, you're screwed. And if you're on their good side, you can almost operate with impunity. Am I wrong on that? 
No, you're you're absolutely right. And when did selling a diary become a federal crime? And so it's just it's unbelievable what the, the how how Attorney General Merrick Garland's Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, who I thought would actually be better than she is, uh, Chris Ray, the FBI Director, Benita Gupta, the, the number three, the Associate Attorney General, uh, Kristen Clark, the head of the Civil Rights Division. These are radicals. These are left-wing radicals who are running the Justice Department, and they have completely. Chris Ray's not a left-wing radical. He's just a complete pussy who lets the FBI run him instead of running the FBI. Right? He's just he's scared Lisa Monaco is going to shove him out the door, and if Lisa Monaco is going to take his job. But it is a totally politicized and weaponized Justice Department. I mean, think about this: we have abortion industry activists harassing and intimidating, threatening Supreme Court justices outside right. of their homes, a clear violence, it's a clearly obstruction of justice under 18 USC 1507. Not a damn thing happens. They do an assassination attempt against uh, Justice Kavanaugh, his wife, Ashley, and their two daughters. They're still letting these protests happen, right? And then you have these abortion activists who are terrorizing Catholic churches and crisis pregnancy centers. Not a damn thing happens. Uh, BLM destroys America, billions in damage, Exactly, uh, dozens of people killed, political terrorism for six months. Not a damn thing happens. But if you're a Christian, if you're a pro-life Christian and you're praying outside of an, outside of an abortion clinic and the state rejects the case, the feds are going to come in and do a home raid and take you out. I mean, it's unbelievable how this has been so politicized and weaponized. And uh, you know, <laughs> Republicans have to win back the House and the Senate, because I, I can tell you as someone who worked for Senator Chuck Grassley, he will become the chairman of the Judiciary Senate Judiciary Committee again, and he is going to rain hell on the Biden Justice Department and the FBI. The FBI has been in his political crosshairs for decades, going back to Ruby Ridge. He knows it's a corrupt organization, and he this is his time to to uh, to gut the leadership. It's not the rank and file members of the FBI. These are good men and women who serve in the FBI. This is the, the rotten to the core political leadership at Maine Justice and at the Washington Field Office. And Mike, I, I hear what you're saying about the, uh, you know, the, the officers and rank and file, but, you know, as, as a prior rank and file type type guy, I would say, don't be so sure because you know when you have when you have the leaders the upper echelon and you say what type of leaders are these guys what do they want to see if i'm to succeed who, what am i going to emulate so i'm not saying they all would would act like the upper echelon but certainly some will uh but that's just my my reaction i want to bring it back a little bit though back to um to uh to the to the Mar-a-Lago, to the raid it was all over Twitter today. I didn't know I'd fallen in this fight, but I fell into one, okay, where there was a uh, – someone posted uh, – they said, hey, look, it was, it was seized his, his, uh, phone, his phone log, right, for the, on J6. And it, the meme was of, uh, was, was of Obama, you know, with the quote, uh, we got him. And everybody went nuts, and I, that's why I want to just ask you, Mike, because I posed one question – which was pretty simple, is, is what evidentiary value does the log have? What does the log mean? It's expected that he's going to have a phone call uh, on, on J6. And, and I was uh, viciously attacked, which is okay. I got thick skin. But, but wh why does that matter? It, it doesn't, it's whatever narrative the de Democrats are running at the time. Everything they do is bullshit, right? It's, it's, it's always about political narratives. And it's usually... What they're accusing conservatives of doing, they're actually doing, right? So, I mean, they they have to create – they 
look, Democrats can't run on the fact that they have become a Marxist party who want to destroy America because they hate America and they want to remake it in, you know, some third world Marxist hell. Well, they're doing a very good job at that. So they they run on their coalitions and they run on their hoax. And so, you know, whether it's COVID, BLM, uh, you know, Russian collusion, democracy, whatever the hell they're running on that day. I mean, just, it's, it's all about dishonesty, right? They can't run on they they can't run on their agenda and their record because the American people don't like it. So it's all about creating these narratives, these hoaxes. And so on January 6th, okay, let's look and see what happened on January 6th, right? January 6th, people thought that the election was stolen or they had questions about the election, right? It's not illegal to question election results unless you're in a third world hellhole like North Korea. Then it's illegal to question election results unless of course you're dealing with the Biden administration and the, the Trump deranged rhinos like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Because I, I remember that Democrats questioned the election, uh, Republican presidential wins in 1968 with, with Nixon in 2000 and 2004 with George W. Bush and 2016 with Trump. They objected. Democrats objected to every one of those elections. I remember Hillary Clinton saying that Trump colluded with the Russians to steal the election, and she still, she has not, she has not uh, st- backed down from that. I remember Stacey Abrams uh, saying that that she that she would not concede the election in 2018, and she's running for election of Georgia in 2022. So this whole notion that it's a crime to question elections is complete nonsense. It's that it's our First Amendment right to question elections, and again. It's only illegal to question elections in third world hellholes. And so the fact that Democrats are trying to make these non-crimes into crimes and they're, they're weaponizing main justice, the U.S. attorney's offices, the FBI to go after their political enemies. This is this is a red line that they've crossed. And it is stunning to me that more Republicans in Congress are not more strenuously objecting to this because they're such cowards. They, I always say that D.C., is the only place on the planet where the lack, where the reptiles lack backbones, and it is. I what we need to do as conservatives out in the country is help these conservatives, these Republicans, find their backbones because we're going to lose our country if this continues down this path. Yeah, my last technical one for me, you know, because uh, obviously you're 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 a lawyer in, involved in this, right? Uh, so. Big people's reaction, they say, well, look, Trump, you know, had the original documents. He didn't have copies. He had OG documents. They're they're supposed to be archived. uh, And that's proof alone of the crime. Right. Uh, You know, apparently a lot of boxes. And and I I just posed the questions. Do we know that he knows the contents? Do we know, you know, uh, did he move the boxes himself? Is he a hoarder? Like, you know. You know, it's not a three bedroom, one bath house either. So, you know, but I pose those questions. But I guess mine to you is is uh, original documents. Are they is that concerning? Well, first of all, it doesn't matter under the Presidential Records Act whether they're uh, whether they're original or copies of documents. But if they are in t- if they are classified documents, that means that the president is getting a copy of a CIA document or another intel agency document and the originating agency has the original, right? So it's just nonsense to say that, oh, Trump had the only copy of these classified, these documents marked classified. That's just not true. Someone had to have written those documents and marked it classified and gave it to the president, right? So the president has the copy of those documents. But even if the president had the original document, he's allowed to have those under the Presidential Records Act. So 
you know, maybe there's some love letter between him and between Trump and the North Korean dictator that he caps. Well, okay, yeah, that's a presidential record. It might be the original. But guess what? Under the Presidential Records Act, the president makes the sole determination whether something is a presidential record that gets sent to the archives and then gets almost certainly sent back to him to put in his library, or it's his personal record that belongs to him. Before the Presidential Records Act was passed during the Nixon administration, presidential records were personal property of the president. It wasn't until Nixon that Congress changed it, but there is no criminal components to the Presidential Records Act. It is essentially the president makes it well, it's not essential. The president makes the determination whether records are personal or presidential. And if he takes, again, this is the 2012 Clinton Sockdor case. If the president leaves the White House with records and he doesn't turn them over as presidential records, they are deemed personal records. And it does not matter whether they're classified or not. So most conservatives I know, Mike, would have been just as disgusted by an FBI raid on Obama's residence um, with the same fact pattern as the Mar-a-Lago raid. So I'm wondering, why do you think the left is incapable of applying the shoe on the other foot test when Trump is involved? And uh, do you have any thoughts on the FBI raids on pro-lifers' homes? I know you, you kind of briefly mentioned that, and I think that was in Pennsylvania as well as Tennessee. So it's across multiple states. Because today's Democrats are, this is not my parents or my grandparents' Democrat party. I was raised by Democrats. Fortunately, I saw the light at about four. But these are not liberals who love America and believe in equality and due process and opportunity and just agree with conservatives on the best way to get there. These are not liberals. These are leftists. These are, this is like a, there's too much of the leftist Marxist takeover of the Democrat Party, and they don't care about equality. They care about equity. They care about power. They par- they care about divide and conquer. They care about winning. They care about the ends justify justify the means. They don't care about consistency or not being a hypocrite. They only care about power. That is their goal. That is their God. Is power on earth? Their religion or strategy to get their to their goal or God for power on earth is Marxism and their tactics. Their tactics or their religious sex is chaos and division. So, again, BLM, racial division, gender division, 15 pronouns, uh, COVID restrictions. They want chaos in this country. They want us to hate each other and hate this country and so they can transform it into their third world Marxist hellhole. And they're doing a very good job at it over the last two years. So they don't they don't care about consistency. They don't care about uh, intellectual honesty. They care about winning and power. Right. And then it seems like Ray is allowing that. But, he, is a, um, he is a complete, Chris Ray. He was, when I worked for Senator Grassley as chief counsel for nominations, I inherited Chris Ray. He was my second day on the job. I had finished the Gorsuch clerkship. I had to move all my crap across the country from Colorado and start my job. My second day on the job, I inherited Chris Ray. And I remember the Democrats all spun up and got the, the pansy ass Republicans all spun up about Russian collusion, Russian collusion. Trump's, uh, you know, a Russian agent. And so that's how we got Chris Ray. And he is an Ivy League, you know, blue blood pussy who will not rock the boat at the FBI. The FBI absolutely runs Chris Ray. He is completely incompetent. He is a uh, he is a Comey protege. He worked for for Comey for five years during the Bush 43 administration. He's completely in over his head. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's a total wimp. And you know, the problem is, is if we get rid of him, we're going to get Lisa Monaco, right? And so who, which one's worse? I'm not, I, I think we should impeach Chris Ray because he's been so bad 
uh, and just, you know, if Republicans take over the Senate, hold the FBI job open and just have an acting person in there that you can control. Yeah, and his impeachment will be long, long overdue. We can definitely say that. Now, he, he is he is terrible for for allowing these home raids on pro-life people, allowing this home raid on on Trump. Remember, he sent an army of FBI agents to go get Bubba Wallace's noose solved, right? You're yes. sending FBI agents to go get Ashley Biden's crackhead diary where, you know, President Biden's allegedly molesting his daughter or taking showers with her, whatever the hell that creep is doing. Of course, of, cor- of course, all of his kids are fucked up. Look at him. I mean, he's, uh, it's just, they, they, they've turned the Justice Department and the FBI into a, a political it is a political hit squad for the Biden White House and the DNC. Yeah, the enforce definitely enforcement arm of uh, the DOJ is the enforcement arm of uh, the Democrats at this point. So just last question on the topic of the Trump raid. And I'm glad that you brought it up. That's the Clinton sock drawer case, because you've been posting about that for at least weeks from what I've seen. And President Trump recently highlighted this case on his true social page. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why this case is so important. You know, why is Bill Clinton allowed to have highly classified records in his sock drawer? Why was Obama allowed to have highly classified classified records in an unsecured storage unit, but Trump isn't. And this is with yeah. you know, potentially declassified records. It's because the, the, the bureaucrats of the National Archives are, uh, they're not, you know, just some innocent librarians who are just trying to do good work. He, Obama was very good at, at transforming many parts of the federal government into hardcore leftists. And that, that you would think the National Archives would be immune from that, but they're not, right? There's no criminal components against the Presidential Records Act. And they've ginned up this like the this is like the the Alex Benman the, the archivist has become the Alex Benman of the, of the Mar-a-Lago raid right he ginned up this this non-crime to make it sound like Trump had these classified records that he wasn't supposed to have and it violated the Espionage Act and it violated the Federal Records Act and it was obstruction of justice because he wouldn't turn them over it's all nonsense again the president has the absolute right to have his records, his presidential records. He doesn't have the right to have any classified record, meaning once he leaves office, if they're not classified, if they're not his, he can't just go to the CIA as the president and say, I'm going to take this, you know, TSSCI document home with me. That's, that's not his presidential record. But if, if he, if he created the record or his staff created the record or received the record while they're in the White House, those are presidential records under the Presidential Records Act. He has the absolute statutory right to to have his records, to take his records. And again, with the Clinton software case, 79 audio recordings, eight years of his presidency, highly classified conversations with foreign leaders and his secretary of state and other, you know, it's, these these conversations are born classified, right? When Clinton, when Clinton took these, he had the right to take them under the Presidential Records Act because he took them. He didn't turn them over. Therefore, they're, they are deemed personal and it doesn't matter if they're classified. They're declassified through his actions. And, you know, the, the National Archives, the Justice Department accommodates every other former president with their presidential records. Clinton, George W. Bush. You talked about Obama with the, the Hoffman estates. It was just Trump that they decided that these high, you know, Trump had 100 documents that were marked classified. He declassified them, but they were marked. It doesn't matter if he declassified them because he was allowed to have them. But he had these in Mar-a-Lago. It is the office of the former president. He used this office when he was the president. It is guarded by the Secret Service. It's debugged. It has, 
the Congress gives former presidents office space, secure office space or skips. They get security clearances. They get Secret Service protection. These documents did not leak again for the 18 months that they were in Mar-a-Lago. The only time they started leaking is when the Biden Justice Department raided him illegally, unconstitutionally, and took these documents. Then they started leaking, just like this log of his privileged documents that, you know, just, oh, oops, we misfiled it with the court and it became public. And it's a detailed description of his of his uh, p- privileged communications, his tax records, his communications with his lawyers that they that they illegally raided. I would say this, if you have 11,000 documents from a home raid, it's pretty clear it's an unconstitutional home raid, right? Because why the hell would you need to go get 11,000 documents? And then you've got Obama with his 30 million documents that you know he promised you'd microfilm and still hasn't after five years. Um, but I'm really glad that you made that distinction between you know when the the actual documents were made because I think that's really important for people to hear. So I'd like to pivot over to talking about Jim Jordan. So you've oh, been gosh. delving into big tech. Uh, yeah, saw your tweets, which were fantastic about this, and you discovered that Jim Jordan, you know, top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee, is a big problem. As you said, he's Google's biggest champion. So on an episode of Bannon's War Room, and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you here. You said Jim Jordan, on the other hand, pretends like he's fighting big tech publicly but then does their bidding behind the scenes and twists a lot of arms to do Google's bidding. And I think he needs to be exposed. So it's definitely surprising to me. I mean, maybe not a shock. Nothing Congress does is a shock these days or anyone in Congress, but he's become increasingly popular among conservatives. He's posted about taking on big tech, saying things like, you know, speeding up the legal process to break it down and claims to be drafting a bill to take on big tech. That was in June, 2021. So it's really concerning if he's not actually doing what he says especially with his increasing popularity. So I'm wondering if you tell us a little bit more about this. Um, like, what is his reasoning? Is it just money? And if well, he has responded to any of this. So what have you discovered? Well, he, he's going to go respond on Bannon tomorrow, which is good. You should tune in and I'll respond after that. Uh, so Jim Jordan, I started the Internet Accountability Project three years ago to take on big tech from the right on uh, antitrust, Section 230, data privacy. Uh, when I left... The Senate Judiciary Committee, I had a lot of people beating down my door because I had helped confirm two Supreme Court justices and transform the lower courts. So I had law firms beating down my door, corporations beating down my door. Uh, One of the places was the Google law firm. And I talked to the Google law firm. I had one meeting with them, talked to them. And uh, uh, it was after that meeting that I had a former colleague introduce me to someone who used to work with big tech. And... This person uh, left big tech and was mortified by what what big tech was doing. This is before people knew a lot about big tech. And this person educated me for six months on how bad big tech is. We had an idea in 2019 that big tech tech was bad. We just didn't know the extent of it. This is before Hunter Biden laptop. This is before they they deplatformed Trump. This is before they just completely weaponized big tech against conservatives. And so I started the Internet Accountability Project. And, you know, it's it's not lucrative. I'm doing this because I'm an ideologue and not because I care about money. I could have made millions of dollars more in law firms than the, the you know, the less than I'm making in the United States Senate doing these outside groups, which is fine because I'm not driven by money. So anyway, I started the Internet Accountability Project and we have been working with people like Congressman Ken Buck, conservative all star from Colorado. Senator Chuck Grassley, my former boss, Senator Tom Cotton, Senator Mike Lee, Cruz, you know, lots of conservatives to push these bills to finally break up big tech's market power. 
If you are a conservative, if you're a free market conservative, a free market requires a functioning market. And when you have trillion dollar big tech monopolists, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple uh, colluding to crush competition, you no longer have a functioning market. You have a failed market. And we have seen that very clearly with tech. A, a good example of this is Parler. People said, if you don't like Twitter, build your own. And so Parler did this. Parler quickly gets a $1.3 billion valuation because a lot of conservatives were like, this is great. We can go join Parler. We don't have to put up with Twitter censorship and other bullshit. And, uh, and so what happened? So we had Google and Apple who uh, they have the App Store duopoly. They kicked Parler out of the App Store duopoly. And then uh, Amazon kicked them off the internet. And they used it. They, they said that they, the reason they did this is because Parler organized the January 6th riots, which is nonsense. The January 6th protests were organized on Facebook. But, but that just shows there goes your build your own argument. So I've been pushing with Congressman Ken Buck Senator Grassley, Senator Cruz, Senator Cotton, Senator Lee, many others. So we need to update our antitrust laws so we can take on big tech. Right now, the problem with our antitrust laws is there is something called the consumer welfare. It's a conservative concept out of the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, Bork, Scalia, you know, good guys, but they're just wrong on this. That on the Sherman Act and the, the Clayton Act, it's essentially what I call conservative judicial activism. That if you do, if the if the anti-competitive conduct does not affect price, it's not an antitrust violation. It's more complicated than that, but that's the simple version. If it doesn't affect price, then there's not an antitrust violation under the consumer welfare consumer welfare standard. Here's the problem with Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. It's all free, or we think it's free. They're not trillion dollar companies by giving up freebies. They they are surveillance. Uh, companies that they track our movements, our searches, everything we do online, they track, and then they sell us to advertisers for the commodity. That's why they give us free stuff, free Facebook, free Gmail, free Google Maps, free Twitter, free, you know, free, 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 even very significantly discounted Google phones. They, because we, they're not, we're not buying, we're not buying their products and services. They are selling us to advertisers. That's how they make their money. So we have tried to work with Congress on a bipartisan basis, it takes 60 votes in the in the Senate, plus the House, plus a president to get on board. And we have a, the stars are aligned. Biden has been wrong on everything, except from my perspective, he's very good on antitrust, on big tech antitrust. And so we have this rare window of opportunity for the first two years of the Biden administration to actually update and enforce our uh, antitrust laws as it relates to big tech, so we can break them up. If Google competed against YouTube instead of acquired YouTube, there is no chance they would censor conservatives. They would be competing over as many users as possible. But because Google acquired YouTube, they don't have competition. So they don't, they don't, they can treat conservatives like shit and censor us because they can, right? It's, there's no competition. There's nowhere else for us to go. Mm -hmm. And so, and they do. And so they do. And so an example is Twitter with Parler. That's why they're so terrified that Elon Musk is buying Twitter, right? Because he's actually going to change these things, hopefully. But we shouldn't have to rely on a benevolent billionaire, you know, overpaying for Twitter for us to have free speech online, right? It shouldn't be that way. And yeah. so we've, we're, we're working with these bills. The problem is, is Jim Jordan, look, he is, he, uh, Google is his, was his second biggest PAC contributor. 
He takes a lot of money from big tech, but it's even more than that. His staff comes from Google's world. They come from Mercatus. They come from that that universe. They come from all the all this dark money in their world is funded by Google. They the, his one of his top staff members took t- uh, ten. I, I'm sorry. They, he took uh, he took twenty thousand dollars in trips. I think it was like ten trips for twenty thousand dollars from Google funded groups, and so. that's the problem is, is they, they are, and these are trips to Vegas and around the world, they're Google funded, right? They're Google funded shills. So if if Jim Jordan actually came out and said, look, like Daryl Issa, Daryl Issa just comes out and basically says he's a big tech shill. And you know what? He should be. Those are his constituents in California. And he makes no bone about, makes no bones about it. Jim Jordan from Ohio though, pretends like he's fighting big tech but then he twists arms and knifes people behind the scenes any chance he can to stop these bipartisan antitrust reforms from, mm-hmm. from getting through. Before it was like, oh, we, we don't have to do Section 230 reform, which is never going to happen anytime soon because there's not the votes in the House and the Senate like we have on antitrust. We, we, we don't need to do Section 230 reform right now because the free market will fix this. Okay, then the free market... It's clearly not going to fix it because we don't have a free market because we have these trillion-dollar big tech monopolists crushing parlor. There's no chance the free market's going to fix this. And so then he, he didn't want – he wanted to do 230. He said we, we don't need to do 230 reform because the free market. And then we pivoted to antitrust reform. And he says, oh, no, you don't need to do antitrust reform. You need to do 230 reform. It's he's, He says one thing, and he sounds great. I, I listen to his speeches. I, I read his stuff. I follow his tweets. I watch him on Fox News. He sounds great. He's great. I'm almost cheering for him. But then I realize that he's Google's water boy. He carries their water for them. He not only does he not only does he pretend like he's fighting big tech, but then does their bidding behind the scenes. What pisses me off the most about Jim Jordan is he knifes conservatives like Ken Buck, like my former boss Chuck Grassley, like Mike Lee, like uh, you know Tom Cotton. He knifes the conservatives taking on big tech and says that you know they're running. Democrat bills and all this nonsense. So I am, I am not a fan of all, at all of Ken Buck, and I've made it very, very clear. And this last, we just had a, a, a vote on very modest proposals that would allow state attor- state attorneys general to keep their antitrust lawsuits in their home state instead of getting dragged out to the Northern District of California to get, you know, kicked out of court by a Google friendly judge. Uh, increasing filing fees on big tech when they're doing their mergers so we can give more money to the FTC and the Justice Department Antitrust Division to do their antitrust law enforcement. It lowers these merger filing fees for everyone else. And then also making big tech disclose their China subsidies when they're doing their mergers and acquisitions. Jim Jordan should have supported these modest proposals. They're so basic and easy. Yeah, and 100 Republicans, 100 House Republicans should have supported these things. Jim Jordan whipped so hard behind the scenes, he got these down to 39 House Republicans. It, it passed, but it should have been 100 House Republicans instead of 39. And so that's when I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to expose so, them. I thought that government employees, though, were limited to gifts of $20 or less. So that's um, that's interesting. Now, I know oh, well, the Supreme but Court... Con- 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 Congress, makes out some, Congress makes some very, very interesting... Uh, rules for themselves. And so you can have these, you can have these so-called nonprofits and these industry groups that are funded by Google, take these congressional staffers on their trips to Vegas and Europe and all around the world. The Supreme Court just agreed to take on a section 230 case. Are you excited about that? 
you know, I'm not excited in the sense that I don't know how the Supreme Court's going to rule on this stuff. I don't, I, I, I'm just not confident that Justice Kavanaugh is, and maybe Barrett are going to be where we need them to be on this common carrier theory. Um, it's, here's the deal with Section 230. I, it's, I think it's unconstitutional. I think it's government, uh, I think it's government sponsored censor, censorship, right? You, so you either, uh, you're, 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 you're picking winners and losers in speech. And I just think that it just should be straight up repealed because if you try to tweak it or you're dealing with censorship, I think the courts are going to step in and say that this is viewpoint discrimination. These platforms have the First Amendment right to discriminate uh, against whoever they want based upon viewpoint. It's just a mess. Just get rid of it. But I also think that there's no chance that Section 230 reform is going to happen anytime soon. Uh, there's not the political will or the political coalition to get anything done on it in Congress. Whereas if you want to fix censorship, you you do it through antitrust. And how you do that is, again, if there are multiple platforms competing against each other, it's it's much less likely that they, they will censor their users because they're trying to compete for them. Again, Google would not be censoring, Google and YouTube would not be censoring conservatives if they competed competed against each other instead of Google acquiring YouTube. And Mike, just a last one for me, because it's been uh, it's been really insightful tonight is um, when you clerked uh, for, you know, Justice Gorsuch, you know, and, and, and you're in the building and you're, you're around these justices and stuff. I guess uh, the question is, what what was surprising? What was a, you know, a, a takeaway that you didn't expect in going into that into that job? I was surprised that, and this is this is I'm not blowing smoke up to anyone's asses here. I I was surprised at how collegial it was. Um, it is, you know, it could have changed with Roe versus Wade a bit, but you know, it will get back to normal. It's it is truly a tight knit uh, family within the Supreme Court, and with the justices and their law clerks and their their support staff and the guards and the kitchen people and the, the, the cleaning people, it is a, it is a very collegial warm place. And each one of the law, so each justice has four law clerks and we got there, we were like the way too old law clerks who would help Gorsuch get confirmed. And so we just helped them get set up on the Supreme Court. So we did a, a short clerkship for a few months and then they can get the younger, smarter people in there, but we helped them get set up on the Supreme Court. And we do each, there's a tradition that, each set of law clerks has lunch with each one of the justices, kind of like speed dating throughout the process. And so we had like to, to have lunches uh, with eight different justices. And it was just a really good experience to go around and, and, and meet these justices. They're, they're very warm. They're very friendly. They, 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 you know, of course they're, they're dealing with the most highly contentious cases on the planet that divided the lower course, their circuit splits. Um, and, you know, they, you have to have nine people try to work on a case that have split the country. And it's amazing that you actually, not only do you get to unanimity quite a bit of the time on these cases, nine to nothing, quite a bit on these cases, which is shocking. It's also shocking that even when it's the most highly contentious cases, how well people get along. Like it's, it's you'll you'll read like the Nina Totenbergs of the world with her bullshit reporting about how everyone's ready to you know choke each other at the Supreme Court. And it's just that's just not the case. It's it, it was that so that's what surprised me the most is how well people get along. That's awesome to hear. So Mike, as we wrap up here, question for you, uh, compound for you. First is 
where do you see uh, this Trump Mar-a-Lago case going? And what's next for you? What's what's on the agenda? Uh, what do you have your eyes set on? So on the Trump case, it's going to go up to the Supreme Court in one of two ways. It will either be through the civil process, through the Rule 41G motion uh, under the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure to get back his property that was illegally raided from Mar-a-Lago. This was clearly an unconstitutional home raid on the face of the warrant. It's a, it's a general warrant, which is unconstitutional. They went to a biased magistrate judge and they went to they're investigating non-crimes like like i said it's the presidential records act that controls not the federal records act uh espionage doesn't apply to the president and you can't obstruct justice you can't obstruct investigations on non-crimes and so that's the civil route is updated rule 41g from trump give me back all eleven thousand of these records you had no right to have them. and frankly i think they should have done this they should have done that on day you know, the day after the raid. I don't know why it's taken so damn long, but whatever. So there's the Rule 41G on that that, could, that will bring this up and tee this up through the civil route, uh, through the Southern District of Florida, through the 11th Circuit, and then through the Supreme Court. Or if, if Biden is stupid enough to indict, uh, it's going to be a loser case, but he could indict in D.C. Uh, you'll have some uniparty judge and, you know, a 95% Democrat and 5% Trump deranged jury pool, and maybe they win a, a, a conviction in D.C. It goes up to the D.C. circuit, and the Obama-appointed left-wing lunatics affirm some bullshit conviction, and then it has to be resolved by the Supreme Court. I think one way or the other, this has to go to the Supreme Court, and Trump is absolutely going to win at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Great insight. Um, and as far as you, Mike, as we wrap up here, uh, what's on the horizon for you? What's on the horizon? I mean, I'm we are doing this big antitrust push to get these bills done by the end of the year, and that and that requires that I keep clubbing Jim Jordan upside the head uh, politically, so he can uh, so he <laughs> yeah. so he stops putting his uh, his behind the scene uh, pressure on these House Republicans, and we can get these. Uh, I think we have a, a very good chance of passing significant bipartisan antitrust reforms on big tech during the lame duck session. And so that's what I'm going to push for. There's the uh, 2992, which is the non-discrimination bill, which would prevent the next parlor massacre between Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple destroying parlor. Uh, there's a bill on journalism that takes money away from Google and Apple and gives money to conservative and local media to keep them alive. Um, there, There's the venue bill. There's the non-discrimination bill, as we discussed this. There's some key bipartisan reforms that can really uh, go a long way into breaking up big tech's uh, monopoly over information and commerce in this country. And those are really important. So that's what I'm going to be focusing on a lot. I'm going to continue to defend Trump ferociously, and I'm going to be gearing up to work with uh, Republicans on serious, serious oversight uh, in the next Congress of the Biden Justice Department. Yeah, it's definitely needed. So, Mike, absolute pleasure. Hopefully we'll have you on soon again. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day today. Um, Julia, Mark? Uh, it was fantastic to talk to you, Mike. Um, I love following you on Twitter. love your tweets. I was wondering if tomorrow you'd be challenging Jim Jordan on War Room, because I know that you're um, practically a fixture on there. So anything ah, you want, enjoy it. I would, I, I, I would love to, but I think he's too much of a chicken shit to do it. So. <laughs> yeah, I, can, I, I believe that I'll, now. After I'll, I'll, put, I'll put on wrestling oil if he wants. Whatever he yeah. wants. 
Well, that'd be wonderful. Definitely keep it up um, because, it, you know, what even is the point of winning? And I mean, I still encourage everyone to go out and vote, but what is the point of winning if we can't even hold our uh, elected officials accountable? So it's it's fantastic to have that kind of information. Um, we desperately need it. And um, yeah, I hope that um, you continue to hold Jim Jordan's feet to the fire. Yeah, you know, we're gonna, if we don't hold big tech accountable, if we don't hold the Justice Department and the FBI accountable, yeah. we're gonna lose our country. So I just don't give a shit. I've never cared about being, the nice thing about growing up with red hair is you just don't give a shit what people think about you. <laughs> and I'm not gonna start doing that at 45. So I am more than happy to take on these fights because everyone else in this town is too cowardly to do it. Incredibly important. So thank you so much for your work and we hope to have you back. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Much appreciate it. All right, guys, everyone have a great night. Mike, thanks so much. I'll be in touch. Thanks, guys. Good night.